The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. Now, some of you last Friday complained that it was inappropriate and premature of us to discuss colonial Britain in the aftermath of the death of Queen Elizabeth II. But when is it appropriate? Well, certainly we're taking, they're taking their time before they get to the funeral and the issues are being discussed internationally and in Britain as well as to the legacy of Queen Elizabeth, particularly in relation to the Commonwealth as a replacement for empire. And there was a fascinating piece this week in the New York Times by Professor Maya Jasanoff, who is the Coolidge Professor of History at Harvard University and is an expert on the legacy of the British Empire. Maya, thank you very much for taking the time to join us here on The Last Word of Today FM. Thank you for having me. Your piece was extremely interesting in explaining the importance of Elizabeth in the transition from empire to commonwealth. Now, it's interesting to see that King Charles is becoming head of Commonwealth as well now as becoming the King of England. So is this, does the right of succession apply in the Commonwealth as it does in Britain? It does not. Um, the Commonwealth uh, head role is not a hereditary role. However, the Queen let it be known that it was, I believe, quote unquote, her sincere wish that Charles succeed her as head of the Commonwealth. And as a result, the leaders of the Commonwealth at some point uh, in recent years uh, agreed to appoint him, as it were, as the next head uh, in her wake. However, there's absolutely no uh, formal requirement that he have done that or expectation, I think, that William uh, will in due course inherit that role, now, tell us, step into that role. Okay, tell us the difference between the Commonwealth and the Empire, please. So the Commonwealth is a voluntary association of independent nation states. And the empire, of course, was an involuntary entity of non-nation states with Britain in charge and governing territories, as of course, you know, as wide ranging as islands in the Pacific and islands in the Caribbean with uh, large uh, quantities of territory in between. Um, and uh, the Commonwealth as an idea was kind of uh, articulated in, uh, you know, kind of around the beginning of the uh, the 20th century, and one of its great um, architects was uh, the South African premier, Jan Smuts, who was very interested, along with others supporting this idea, of creating a kind of uh, federation of English-speaking colonies, or dominions, as they were gradually gaining more and more home rule. Um, in the period after World War II, with the independence of India and Pakistan, and then, of course, many other places, um, the Commonwealth uh, became uh, sort of less attached, needless to say, to that idea that it was like white settler colonies, English-speaking, etc., and became more a union, uh, sort of, you know, federation, you know, roughly along the lines of others, EU, the uh, the United Nations, that's sort of NATO, you know, other things that uh, attempt to consolidate ties of trade, culture, defense, that sort of thing. Not really defense in the case of the Commonwealth, but we could regard it as a kind of international organization of nation states alongside many others. You often heard it referred to in from British media as the British Commonwealth. But is it really, I mean, is it really something that regards itself as being looking towards Britain as its lead and previously Queen Elizabeth, now King Charles as the titular head? 
So at its inception, I think um, there was a stronger role for Britain simply because of the history of empire out of which it grew. However, at this point, um, it is not the British Commonwealth, it is the Commonwealth. And um, the role of Britain at its center has, for various reasons, kind of declined, I think. Um, I mean, this question of the head of the Commonwealth is so interesting because it does retain that feeling of a of a British authority in the middle of this large organization, which, as I say, I think that they will probably want to move away from by um, not uh, making it clear that William will inherit the role or step into the role next. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, the idea that Britain provides a sort of moral uh, cultural, economic, diplomatic figurehead for this organization, I think was certainly there at the outset and has been, uh, uh, you know, in some abeyance uh, in the decades since. How has Britain come to terms with its post-imperialist era? Because an awful lot of the affection and mourning for Queen Elizabeth may in some respects be um, mourning the passing of previous glories as the British see it. Yeah, I think that there are two features that have been really conspicuous in Britain in the last decades. One of them is imperial amnesia, which is that the simple history of empire and certainly the history of decolonization is remarkably little known by many Britons. It uh, is not included in many school curricula. Um, it's not been much talked about or um, sort of uh, represented in, uh, in, in other kinds of venues, museums, and so on, partly because the records of decolonization have not been made available, partly out of um, uh, official secrets acts and those sorts of things, and partly out of a deliberate effort on the part of the British state to conceal uh, records of what happened as they left different colonies. There's uh, we now know uh, there was a lot of destruction of archives upon the moment of uh, British departure. And then there were hundreds of thousands of documents that were spirited away into a secret archive whose existence was only revealed in the course of a trial recently um, brought by uh, a lawsuit brought by victims of torture in colonial Kenya against the British state. So there's been a lot of um, just ignorance about or forgetting of what happened. And the second feature, of course, is an imperial nostalgia, as you point out, you know, some feeling, I think, particularly in uh, parts of the British right, that, uh, you know, Britain um, ha has been a great power and, and a kind of desire to uh, hark harken back to those those days is, I think, quite evident um, and even made its way into some of the uh, Brexit campaign. And what about Queen Elizabeth's role in all of that? Well, you know, I think that it's important to distinguish her roles in the sense that she was, of course, a living, breathing human until her demise, which has caused people to 
uh, lament the passing of a, a human being who was familiar to millions and who spent every day of her working life uh, performing various functions, um, such as you know opening community centers and visiting hospitals and these sorts of things, which uh, gave her uh, uh, the the sort of persona of being somebody completely dedicated to the public service. But at the same time, she was the embodiment of an institution, and that institution goes on uninterrupted now in uh, uh, the the form of King Charles III. And the institution of the monarchy is um, the in, an institution absolutely bound up with um, the British state and everything that it uh, has done and, and continues to do. And um, in in particular, I would highlight the fact that the monarchy in the 19th and 20th centuries, even as it lost a degree of political power in Britain itself, as it became essentially unacceptable for the monarch to do things like dissolve parliament of their own volition and so on. In these same centuries, the monarchy became more and more bound up with the governance of empire. So to take the example of of India, the person who governed India was known from 1858 as the Viceroy, Viceroy being the Viceroy monarch uh, appointed by the sovereign. So in various ways, the monarchy um, symbolically and in certain respects, even sort of politically, uh, became attached to the British Empire uh, in, in ways that as I see it, meant that when the Queen then presided over the period of decolonization, uh, it was her sort of soft power that was used to um, kind of smooth over transitions that were, uh, in fact, and on the ground, often quite bloody and violent and contested. How many countries still regard King Charles as their king, as their head of state now? Uh, well, you know, that's a number that's uh, likely to change. I believe that it's 14 uh, with the uh, recent declaration by, Barba by Barbados of becoming a republic in 2021. And the situation that we have now, you've written this week in the New York Times, as I said, and also for The Guardian, and received something of a backlash for pointing out some pretty straightforward facts. Why do you believe there remains such a degree of sensitivity amongst elements of the British as to their history? Well, as I've signaled, you know, one of the things that I'm just most struck by is how little many Britons seem to know about the facts of the British Empire and its dissolution. And what that means is that certain um, myths can flourish, because when you don't know any different, and that's, this is what you're told, it tends to be what you believe. So I've been struck, for instance, by a couple of just straight up misconceptions that are out there, one of which is that the Queen was sovereign at a time when the empire was essentially done, which, you know, is is not true. I mean, it's certainly the case that the empire was, you know, 
headed for decolonization after World War II, but it was by no means done. There were there were dozens of colonies at the time she became queen. And the other is this idea that that Britain somehow managed the process of decolonization in a remarkably peaceful and nonviolent way. And that too is simply not true. If you look at the record of what happened in Malaya, in Kenya, in Cyprus, in Aden, uh, the, the situation on the ground was uh, anything but peaceful and nonviolent. So I think that there's uh, just a good deal of ignorance, which paves the way for um, nostalgic, happy images to flourish. And people find it extremely disconcerting to see their uh, vision of history disrupted. You know, in the US, we have something similar with regard to uh, the reckonings about uh, slavery and its aftermaths, which have proved to be incredibly uh, difficult for sectors of uh, white American society to come to terms with. Yeah, how much of it is wrapped up in an issue of excessive self-esteem amongst some people in Britain, not all, because there are many who regard an awful lot of this subservience to the monarchy as almost ridiculous, but that it becomes almost an expression of some kind of British exceptionalism. Yeah, I think that, you know, there's no question that Britain's global footprint has reduced massively over the course of the late Queen's reign. And, you know, it, of course, the empire was indeed, uh, you know, on the way out, as it were, in the period after World War II, the US and, and the Soviet Union were the powers that were calling the shots in the world at that time. But even then, you know, the, the, the complete dissolution of the empire, followed by uh, the, the consequences of, of Brexit and the economic crisis that Britain finds itself in right now, um, I think all sort of underscore the ways in which Britain has, you know, been struggling to find a role and to sustain a kind of um, influence uh, in the world, as well as a kind of just prosperity within its own borders, which right now, as I say, is really uh, at, a, at a crisis point. So the Queen's death right now in what are already very turbulent times within Britain, of course, beyond Britain as well, I think just highlights that disjuncture between what Britain was, certainly what it was in the imaginations of uh, the British public today and what it is. Um, and uh, and it's a difficult disjuncture to come to terms with. Professor Maya Jasanoff, Coolidge Professor of History at Harvard University. Thank you so much for being with us here on The Last Word at Today FM. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here.